Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Walter Ben Michael, a professor and author of the book, The Trouble with Diversity, How We Learn to Love Identity and Ignore Inequality. Walter, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 101.9 FM KVSH, and available online 24-7 at my website, marchtwisdale.com. Thank you for joining us, and now we're going to dive into the show. So, Walter, to get us started, if you can give our listeners a very brief sort of sense of who you are, a little bit of background, that would be great. So, I'm uh, basically a professor of American literature, and... I've written a number of books that are mainly on American literature. I got interested in, in about 15, 20 years ago, I got interested in American literature of the 1920s, and especially people that I'm sure your readers know and read in high school or college, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Willa Cather. And I wrote a book about uh, the importance of race. Actually, it was mainly in the 20s, the importance of um, anti-Semitism. So anti-Jewish sentiment. Mm. In, in people like uh, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. It's called mm-hmm. Our America. And as I was writing that, I got more interested in the way race had functioned in American society, and in particular about how people thought both about racism and the importance of anti-racism. And it was in that context that I first began thinking about it, not so much in terms of literary criticism and the history of literature, but in terms of contemporary American politics, what American politics looked like in the 1990s, and what they especially came to look like in uh, the 21st century. So really, the book that we're talking about today, The Trouble with Diversity, came out of a book I wrote on literature. It's very different from the book on literature, but it's got its origins in just reading and thinking about race and racism in American literature. Right, right. So if you want to learn more about what Walter's been writing over the past couple decades, you can actually Google him. And he says there's a bunch of interesting stuff out there, both pro and con, um, because he talks about an issue that is a nitty-gritty challenging issue, which is to large degree tied in with classism and, of course, racism. And these are hot topics. So what I'm going to do is remind everyone real quick that the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the board, staff, underwriters, or donors of Voice of Ashon. As an organization, VOV does not take political positions. We do support our show hosts and their guests in expressing their views as long as they're not obscene or hate-mongering. So thank you all for listening. And now we're going to dive into some really I find fascinating, but some of you may find challenging uh, topics. So this book, let's just start off, this is the 10th edition. So this came out a decade ago, or a little bit more than a decade ago. Um, What was the reaction to it then and now? So the reaction to it when it first came out was, um, it was a controversial book. And the reason it was controversial is pretty straightforward. Um, What I argue in the book is that the fundamental problems of equality in America in fact, are not based in either racism or sexism, that the fundamental problems are based in capitalism. And that that, and the the primary sort of problems that follow from that, problems of economic inequality, are problems that cannot be solved by anti-racism and anti-sexism. So there were a lot of people, and in fact, there still are a whole lot of people who think that's wrong, who think that unless we pay primary attention 
to notions of uh, above all of racism, we'll never be able to deal with it. And I and I understand that. You know, the truth of it is, is I I'm old enough, so I am older than I hope most of your audience. Um, <laughs> I'm 68 years old, and I'm old enough to have lived during the period of Jim Crow, the 1950s before the decision in Brown v. Board of Education, when in fact segregation was legal and was in many places the law of the land. And I remember very, very well, I've always had it with me all my life, once um, my family, we lived in Connecticut, and we had a woman who worked for us on a daily basis. She was a, a kind of maid, a kind of house cleaner. Actually, we didn't have, have all that much money, not the way rich people do now, but I guess we had enough to be able to afford her to come in. And the truth in our little kind of you know, like glorified Levittown development in suburban Connecticut. Lots of people had people who came to work for them two, three, four days a week to clean the house and help take care of the kids. So I was one of the kids. One year, we were going down to visit friends of my father's in South Carolina, a place I'd never been. And I don't believe my mother or brother had ever been there either. And the woman who'd been working for us was from South Carolina, so we offered to drive her down so while we were down there, she could spend some time with her family. So we did drive down. It was drive from Connecticut, and we started sort of midday, which meant by the time night fell, we'd gotten to about Virginia. And getting to Virginia, we were going to stay someplace overnight. And we went to a hotel with sort of outside Richmond. And well, before we went there, my father said, we have to go into this sort of uh, little community near the hotel. And because the person who was working for us could not stay with us in the hotel. So it was a complete surprise to me. In Connecticut, I didn't know anything about that. What was I, maybe nine years old? I didn't quite understand it, and I wanted an explanation. And the explanation was that black people were not allowed to stay in the hotel we were staying in, and that you had to go to a special kind of boarding house where the person who was working for us could stay. It completely shocked me. Mm-hmm. That is, I had no sense of, I mean, I knew a little bit, but I'm only nine years old, about racism and the history of racism, but it had never affected me in any direct way at all. And, and it made a very profound impression. I think actually, like a lot of other people, for the next 30 or 40 years of my life, um, it seemed to me that the fundamental injustice in American society was precisely anti-black racism. And I define my own politics and the politics of people I associated with very largely in terms of the degree to which they were committed to overcoming that racism. But one of the things that began to come clear to me when I started working on that race book on American literature in the 1920s, and I was working on it in the 1990s, was that if you if you looked at the way inequality actually worked in America, what you saw was two things. You saw, first of all, that it's true that black people were severely victimized by American economic inequality. And then you saw a second thing, which was that the civil rights movement hadn't really much changed that. It was still really true. And then you saw a third thing, which was that a great many white people were actually equally victimized by American inequality, and that for both blacks and whites, starting in the late 1960s, it not only was not getting better, it was getting worse. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the most equal year in terms of income in American, for the years in which we have statistics going back to the late 19th century, the most equal year is 1968. And every year since 1968, the gap between the rich and the poor has gotten greater. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that the gap between the rich and the poor has gotten greater, it's that in many respects, the poor 
have gotten poorer. And that's true for both the black poor and the white poor. If you say in 1983, a family in the 25th percentile of American wealth had a net worth of $11,262. In 2013, that same family had a net worth of $8,800. During this period, 1983 to 2013, that family has gotten almost 33% poorer. And right. that's true all the way through the bottom percentiles of American wealth. So what I began to see was that racism or no racism, Jim Crow or no Jim Crow, we lived in a society in which poor people were, A, growing, <laughs> there, were, there were more and more of them, and B, not only were there more and more of them, but they were, in fact, getting poor. It was a pure version of the rich get richer and the poor get poor. Right, right, you look at right. it that way, you began to think, well, you know, maybe it's not that... It's for sure true that racism is, is wrong, and it's absolutely true that we should oppose racism in every form, but it's not true that opposing racism will make us a more economically equal society. Mm-hmm. If we wanted to think about what it would mean to be a more economically equal society, we had to think about opposing something that runs even deeper than racism does in American history, mm-hmm. and that is opposing the way in which capitalism works in American life. That's what the first edition and indeed the second edition of this book is all about. Right. Brilliant. Thank you for um, sharing that personal story from your childhood. I'm sure actually probably a lot of my listeners may be as um, lucky as you are to have reached their late 60s and um, have some similar memories for sure. I oftentimes talk with friends who are from the deep south and they now live here in the Pacific Northwest and if they are going back home to take care of mom and dad who are, you know, elderly and stuff, they'll return and they're just sort of like, wow, I can't believe it's still like it is, you know, I mean, so it's, it's, it's remarkable for people to be able to travel from one um, culture to another, even within our own country and be able to see these these differences. But- yeah, so that's really true. But the one thing that you'll find a constant if you go to South Carolina or if you go to where you are, which is the far, far west coast or where I live for much of my life, which is in California, where I am now in Chicago, and that is the skin colors may change um, and the cultures may change, but the gap between poor people and rich people stays the same, or as I was saying before, it gets worse. Right. So, you know, one of the things that we often think is, well, race relations have gotten better, but they haven't gotten better enough. Both those things are no doubt true, but economic relations have for sure gotten worse. Right. They haven't gotten a little bit better. They haven't even stayed the same. They've just gotten worse. So let me ask you if you would agree with the sort of farming analogy, given that we're sort of rural here on Vashon. Um, Let's say you've got a potted plant. It's your tomato plant, and it's on the back porch, and it's not doing super, super well. It's got a couple of thrips on it, which are a type of, um, you know, little bug. Maybe it's got some aphids. So... One way of looking at it is, oh, look, you know, the aphids and the thrips are a bad thing, so I'm going to get out my, I'll even go with an organic option. I'm going to get out my little spray, which I make with my rubbing alcohol and my kitchen soap and, you know, shake it up. So we're not doing Roundup here, folks. And I'm going to go spray that plant and I'm going to spray those bugs, right? That's one way of looking at it. But what a lot of people who um, are listening to the show right now are probably thinking is, well, maybe there's something wrong in the soil. Maybe you're, you've got too acidic or too alkaline or, or maybe you need to put some fertilizer because the idea is that a strong, healthy plant can better resist those types of problems, but a weakened plant is not going to be able to handle it. So for me, what I tend to do is I look at classism as being 
an underlying fundamental problem from which grows variants of sexism, racism, and other types of bigotry. Yeah, so actually, I I've ne- I'd never thought of the uh, tomato plant analogy, but that's actually, <laughs> and I, I should say, unlike you guys, I'm, I've lived all my life in big cities, and any time I've ever tried to grow anything, it just died so fast that <laughs> I... Uh, you know, far from being an expert, I feel like I have whatever the opposite of a green thumb is, the thumb that kills the thing it works right. on. But I totally take the point of the analogy. And what I would say is this. I think that's right. Um, you know, we have a society which is essentially structured by class, which just means something like this. It means it's a relation between, you know, labor and capital. It's what people have said for uh, hundreds of years. Yeah. And the way that our society works, especially in the, in the last 30 years, is that in order to maintain profits or to increase profits, people have had to take that those profits out of the wages of their workers, out of the wages of labor. You know, if you look at, I, I'm always struck by this, and this is not at all a direct racial thing, but if you look, the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes every year, not every year, but they publish periodically, a list of current jobs that they do every year and a list of the jobs they think will grow most mm-hmm. over the next 10 years. So they have a version of this that came out in 2014 and it's projected to grow from 2014 to 2024. Mm-hmm. So the question is, like, what are the jobs that, that are going to grow the most? Actually, the job that's going to grow the most proportionately is a job that I would I, I would ask you to guess, but you would never guess in a million years. Although, I don't know, maybe you would because you're close to the ocean. Mm-hmm. The job that's going to grow most is wind turbine technician. Ooh. So that's a really fast-growing job. It actually doesn't pay that badly. It pays about $55,000. Right. But the problem is that right now there are only about 4,400 wind turbine technicians. And 10 years from now, they think there'll be about 8,000 wind turbine technicians. So even though it's growing really fast, it's not growing fast enough to make the slightest difference to our economy. Right. Whereas... That sounds more like a a proportional increase. It's sort of like if you go from 1 to 10, wow, that's a lot of growth, but you've only added nine jobs. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Whereas the job that's growing most in terms of actual numbers is personal care aides. You know what a personal care aide is? It's like if you have – so my mother-in-law, we recently – my mother-in-law recently moved to Chicago from Salt Lake City, which is where she's lived most of her life. And she's in a nursing home here in Chicago, Mm -hmm. a really nice one, close to us. We get to see her almost every day. And she's completely dependent, as are we dependent, on the people who take care of her. Registered nurses, which is a pretty big growing job, registered nurses make about $67,000 a year. Most of the people who take care of her and the people on whom we are most dependent, whoever, are personal care aides. Mm -hmm. So personal care aides are growing fast. In 2014, there were 1,768,000 personal care aides. By 2024, we're going to need 2,226,000. That's a big growth. That's a big job. Mm -hmm. Personal care aides are paid about $20,980 a year. And that's basically a poverty wage almost anywhere in the country. That's completely a poverty wage 
I think, absolutely anywhere in the country. There is no, I mean, one person living, our graduate students, we, I teach at a large underfunded public university, University of Illinois, Chicago. I our know that you put in underfunded. <laughs> to support their education and the, and the theory that they're only going to do this for two or three years, that's the kind of money they get paid for doing teaching here. Mm-hmm. It's not a living wage. We hope they'll go on and get better jobs. That's the point of their going to graduate school. Right. Uh, for someone to be required to live on that wage, and it's an important job. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's not a job that requires a lot of education. It doesn't require a college degree. Actually, it doesn't even require a high school degree. But what it does require is someone who uh, can be loving and kind under with people who are often very difficult to take care of, mm-hmm. someone who can, who can administer those medicines, someone who can show up at 4 o'clock in the morning, someone who can help you around, someone who can do things which don't necessarily require a high level of technical skill. But as anybody who's ever had a relative in this position knows, or for that matter, as any of us who can imagine that we will someday be that relative mm-hmm. in that position knows, someone who can take care of you in a humane way is very valuable. Those people get paid $20,000 a year. Right. Now, you can't, I mean, we do get a high quality of care or the highest, higher than we have any right to accept from those people, but the moral of the story, right, is that that's the jobs that are being created. Those jobs pay so little money, and the reason they pay so little money is because they're being created primarily in profit-making corporations. Mm-hmm. The people who run those corporations, actually, healthcare industry, I talk about this in the second edition of the book quite a lot, uh, the healthcare industry has been extremely profitable over the last 10 years. And it's been, and its profits go mainly to shareholders, and its profits go mainly to the extremely highly paid um, executive officers of, right. of, of so those organizations. So let's touch on that for a second, because as you mentioned earlier, um, that the, the concept of recent capitalism has been we must increase profits and we will do so by reducing wages for the people who actually do the work that allows the company to exist. And yet, as has been screamed from the mountaintops, and yet Americans seem to be not actually doing anything about it, is that post-2008, for example, the bonuses being handed out to the upper crust of these same corporations are actually increasing while they're turning around and saying we have to lay people off, quote, in order to keep the company going or whatever. So I Well, have... actually, people get rewarded for laying people off. That's one of the reasons their bonuses do increase. So this, if you this create is... A, if you create an extra profit because you can actually run the company with fewer people mm-hmm. or pay the people you've got less money, then the CEO has earned his or her uh, pay, and they give them more. So that's exactly right. I mean, the whole thing is structured to to produce more money for the people on top. And you know, and to stick with the sort of the trouble with diversity part of it. Yes. If you think about that job, think about the personal care aid. So personal care aids. Well, who do you imagine, March? Who do you think? Prim- if you had to guess, what what sex the most personal care aids belong to? Well, actually, so two things, real quick. I'm going to answer that question, but. Um, before I forget, because I'm worried I'm going to forget this, is that it, for the person who says our main problem is racism and sexism, if the situation the way it is right now were to, um, let's we envision these CEOs who make all this money as being a bunch of white men, and we envision all the workers as being not those white men, right? If suddenly all those CEOs and you know people who are making mega, mega, mega bank were suddenly all... Black, Latino, Native American, and women, 
and all the workers who are being laid off were, you know, whatever. I don't see that as being an improvement just because we alter yeah, the no, I, gender I and the race. I mean, it's exactly the same. It's just you change the people around. I mean, in fact, your your example really gets the point. Personal care aides now are, no surprise, overwhelmingly women. Right. 85% of them are women. Twenty, Almost 25% of them are African-American, 10% mm-hmm. are Asian, about 20% are Hispanic or Latino. Mm-hmm. So one way to look at the problem, and this is, I think, the way – we generally look at the problem, and this would be exemplified, I think, um, in, say, the Clinton campaign from last year. You say, well, look, this is completely unfair. You know, you have a whole, you have women who are being unfairly treated. You have, above all, minority women who are being unfairly treated. And what we want is a world when those, where those women have the chance not just to be personal care aides, but to be registered nurses, to be, to be the CEO of that company, to be mm-hmm. shareholders in that company. Mm-hmm. So one way to look at it is to say what's wrong is that women and especially women of color, are being forced into these bad jobs. Mm -hmm. But, of course, if you look at it that way, you run up against the point you just made, which is that, fine, let's take those jobs and let's give them all to white men. Um, That doesn't make them better jobs. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it more unjust that the people who are taking them, who are uh, taking them or are paid as badly as they are, that right. just changes the sex and the skin color of the people who are being victimized um, by the vast inequalities of our society. If you take so, a pyramid and you move the colored dots around, it doesn't change the fact that you have a very small point at the top and a huge giant base at the bottom. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, that, and that actually was the core point of the trouble with diversity, mm-hmm. which is that if you want, you know, I, well, I used to imagine it as kind of like if you had a magic wand. So supposing a Martian came down, um, and you could say to them, or Martians say, well, I, you know, I, I see you've got problems here. You've got tremendous problems with equality. Do you want me to help you to solve those problems? We said, yes. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? And we said to him, well, first of all, what we want you to do is to eliminate all racism and sexism. So he waves his magic wand, and racism and sexism goes away. So we look around, though, we see that, that totally doesn't solve our problem because, I mean, especially, I'd say, African-Americans in the U.S. are still going to be comparatively poor because, after all, there's a long history, not just of racism, there's a long history of slavery and then Jim Crow segregation and the racism that followed that. So we say it's not enough. You, have to, you can't just eliminate racism as it is now. You have to eliminate all the effects mm-hmm. of the history of racism. So, so that would that be, for, so for example, we have in this country, and I like to um, remind people that there are different ways of living in the world. In this country, once you are convicted of a felony, um, well, okay, you go into prison, you can't vote while you're in prison. And if you're in prison because you were convicted of a felony, then for the rest of your life, you can't vote. You don't have a voice. The country has turned its back on you in that way. Right. Meanwhile, you go over to Europe and not only can every single person who's in jail or prison vote while they're there? And literally the politicians will travel around to the few prisons that exist and actually speak to the inmates to solicit their vote. But when you come back out, of course you have a voice. You've served your time. You've paid your debt to society. And you come out to a society that welcomes you with open arms. So you feel like, you know, so... It's like um, that's that I think is a, one of the quote effects of the racism that making it so that you couldn't vote when they knew that a higher majority of prisoners in America 
in a lot of areas were going to be minorities, was a great way of disenfranchising minorities in America. So I think that's completely right. But then when you realize, of course, is that suppose you could eliminate the racism now, could eliminate the history of racism, mm-hmm. and you could even make it so that people, when they got out of prison, would actually not carry the, the, the sort of stigma right. of having been in prison in that way and be able to vote. But the thing you realize is that as long as you've got the economy we have now, you've not really changed anything at all. What you've just changed is right now African-Americans, for example, are way overrepresented in the bottom quintile. It's the bottom fifth of American wealth. Mm-hmm. They're like at about you know, 24, 25 percent. But in fact, they should be 13.2 percent because that's the proportion of the population that's African-American. Right. So what if you got out and say, fine, now we've gotten rid of racism, 13.2% of the very poor are black, 13.2% of the very rich are black, and it's 13.2% all the way from the top to the bottom. But you haven't changed anything at all. All you've done is change the skin color. Because there's still still a really small number of people at the top. There's a increasing number of poor people. They're still a much smaller and not so much increasing, except in their wealth, number of rich people. And what you've got is a society that is exactly as unequal as it is now. It's just that inequality comes in different colors. And that's, you know, a central problem, which all the commitment to diversity Well, it's not just that it can't solve it. The part of the argument I make is that it really is a way of defending it. It's a way of trying to say, listen, inequality isn't bad unless it's produced by racism or sexism. Mm -hmm. If you can get rid of racism and sexism and still have inequality, it would be okay because it would be justified inequality. That's what um, conservative economists call the difference between good inequality and bad inequality. Bad inequality is the kind produced by racism and sexism. Good inequality is the kind produced by differences in ambition, differences in willingness to work hard, differences in skills, differences in aptitudes. It's the so-called good inequality or perceived differences, making twenty thousand dollars a year. Right. I think what what I want to say, I don't know if everybody wants to say, but what I want to say is that a society where it's a good inequality, if people who are given important jobs like taking care of the sick and the old are paid twenty thousand dollars a year, is a society that's misunderstood. Uh, the meanings of the term good and bad. That's not a good equality. That's not an equality that works for them, an inequality that works for them, and it's not an inequality that works for us. So a crucial argument for the book, and this is, you know, what's made the book in in some quarters anyway controversial, is that even if you set race and sex aside, you haven't really begun to deal with the fundamental problems of capitalism, and that a lot of the people who are committed to insisting on the primacy, the most the importance of racism and the importance of sexism are people who actually are committed to defending the inequalities, to saying, oh, we're worried about people who get left behind if they're left behind because of their race or if left behind because of their sex. But if they're not left behind because of racism and they're not left behind because of sexism, then we don't care if they're left behind. So on that note, I'm going to do a quick station identification. If you're just joining us now, this is March Twisdell, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And today I'm having a great time talking with Walter Ben Michael, the author of The Trouble with Diversity, How We Learn to Love Identity and Ignore Inequality. So thank you all for listening. And now we are going to dive back in. I'm thinking as I look at the list of things we wanted to touch upon here, maybe a question that comes up for me is, My instinct says that a 
person who wants to focus on racism and sexism and pushes back against classism, I have a feeling that one of those groups is the person who is fearful that if they join the push to rework how our society and our our economics function to eliminate classism issues, to try to take that pyramid and turn it into more of like a, a low rectangle where there's just so many more people who are benefiting from the resources of our country and our planet. They are worried that if they go over there and work for that, that in the end, the minority groups will still in the end be left behind. So I have a feeling that that group is just saying, I can't come over here and help a general concept because I'm worried in the end, we're still going to, you know, get messed up. Right. Well, you know, I think that's, I mean, where one really saw this in a very vivid way was before uh, same-sex marriage um, became legal across the country. I was really struck about, it must have been about now five or six years ago, there was a question of trying to make same-sex marriage legal in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm from New York, and I sort of follow New York politics, even though I live in Chicago now. And so Democrats were mainly for it, and Republicans were kind of split. But it looked like the Republican nose would uh, prevail. Um, But suddenly, not so suddenly really, but sort of powerfully, a bunch of very, very influential and wealthy Republicans spoke out against this. Guys who run hedge funds in New York, and running a hedge fund in New York is a very well-paying job. People who are worth hundreds of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, they felt completely, I, I am quoting one of them, and I, I won't give his name, but you would know his name, and re, listeners can write in and get it. But I don't, I don't want to sort of do personalities. Sure. Um, and he's had some legal trouble since, so it might be an issue for him. Mm-hmm. Saying, look, it's completely un-American. It's against Americans' notions of equality not to allow sex, same-sex marriage. So it's right. I, I agree with that. It is against our notions of equality not to allow same-sex marriage, and I completely supported same-sex marriage. But this same person had no trouble with economic inequality on the country. He's one of the largest beneficiaries of economic inequality, and indeed he was part of a committee, all of whom were very, very wealthy financiers who were for equality when it came to marriage and had no interest in equality at all when it came to sharing their wealth. So there's a way in which the social issues in the U.S. have become, I think, increasingly disconnected from the economic issues. And let's face it, that's not true just in the U.S. I mean, if you look at the Brexit vote in Britain uh, recently, if you look at what's going on in France right now, mm-hmm. I actually spent a lot of time in France, and the trouble with diversity uh, was translated into French um, some five or six years ago, and it's been sort of um, controversial and, and debated there as well. So I, I followed that to some degree. In every case, you have a gap between a kind of a group of people often extremely, not not say extremely wealthy, but often, let's say, among the wealthier people in the society who are very, very liberal on social issues. And we should all applaud that. And, you know, I agree with them on all those issues. But they are not at all liberal on economic issues. Right. On economic, they feel there's a fundamental difference between those two sets of issues, and they're right. The difference is this. They're very, very liberal when it comes to discrimination. They're completely opposed to discrimination of all forms. But they're not at all liberal when it comes to exploitation. That is, when it comes to getting the profits out of the people who work for them or the people who work for the companies they invest in. So 
as long as you can have your profits on the one hand and your gay marriage on the other, they're extremely happy. Yeah, in a way, that produces a problem, not just for some of the rest of us. That Mm. produces a problem increasingly for most of the rest of us, since most of the rest of us aren't getting those profits. And it's great that we can have gay marriage. And it's it's absolutely, you know, in my view, it was essential. It was a good decision. I hope that uh, a new Supreme Court doesn't overturn it. But it does nothing whatsoever for the millions of people, both gay and straight, who, whether they can marry or not, whether they choose to marry or not, are living in an economy which makes it increasingly hard for them uh, to earn a living wage, and which makes social mobility um, not only increasingly hard, but actually at a level of difficulty that it's never before achieved in American society. So I do think there's a... And and you can see this in the political parties. I mean, the Democratic Party is clearly kind of split between... This was, you know, in a way, the sub-motif of the... uh, Clinton, Sanders, Mm -hmm. is split between people whose primary allegiance is to liberalism and a social, on the social issues, and people who were increasingly committed to saying, yeah, liberalism on the social issues is important, it's crucial, we must not give that up, but it doesn't mean anything unless it's accompanied by liberalism on the economic issues. So to me, the essence of the, you know, there's a moment um, in the Clinton campaign when early on, and she was clearly a little bit surprised by, as as I confess, so was I, by the strength of the Sanders campaign and by the kind of support he was getting and the way in which he was building. And she gave a speech, which a bunch of us have quoted many times, um, saying, you know, you can break up the big banks, but we're breaking up the big banks and sexism. And the audience all says, no, we're breaking up the big banks and racism. And the audience says, no, we're breaking up the... And she goes on like that. Oh, my goodness. the whole idea, right, was that, yeah, breaking up the big banks, that's fine. But the real issues here are racism and sexism. Sanders doesn't care about racism and sexism. So, of course, that was false in two ways. One is Sanders did care about racism and sexism. But the more profound way in which it was false is that if you didn't do some version of breaking up the big banks and just take that as a kind of metaphor for all the things that you want to do to make housing affordable, Mm -hmm. to make education affordable. Really, what you want to do is make higher education free. Actually, I think you want to make, you want to decommodify housing. Above all, you wanted something even better than Obamacare, Mm-hmm. What you want is single payer, where everybody is entitled to good health care. If you don't do those things, all the anti-racism and anti-sexism in the world won't give you a more equal society. I mean, it's sort of like um, all empires have um, been based upon varying forms of, of classism. So, yeah, I, I really love how you're coming at this. I mean, let's just imagine. Let's go to the czars of Russia. Gee, well, what if the czars were, you know, Chinese and all the people who were serfs in Russia were, I don't know, anything else? Does that somehow suddenly make that system good? Because functionally, what classism does is it institutionalizes lack of fairness. Yeah, no, it's, it depends upon it. <laughs> I mean, it depends upon inequality. So there's a way in which you want to say, yeah, it's, if you, um, you know, the way I, I used to put it, but people hated me saying this, so I stopped, and maybe I'll say it again, is that racism and sexism are just sorting systems. You know, mm-hmm. figuring out who's going to be the ones who get 
victimized right. in our society. Um, but someone's going to get victimized as long as you're running a class-based society. Right. So the question of who it is is important, obviously, in one sense, because we all hope that we're on the winning end rather than the losing end. But the truth is, if you step back, it doesn't matter which of us are the winners and which of us are the losers. Mm-hmm. What matters is a society for social justice, a society that stops creating winners and losers and mm-hmm. starts treating everybody with some measure of equality. So, right. and, you know, it's it's obviously true, right? And on another level, if you just forgot about race and forgot about sex economically, and you just actually redistributed income, of course, the biggest beneficiaries would be black people and women, and to some extent, Latinos. They would be, right. because right now, they're the biggest <laughs> victims. You know, it's like, if you think about this, if you think about single payer, single payer is going to benefit the poorest people if we had single right. payer, you know, uh, uh, health insurance in the U.S. today. Right. It should benefit the poorest people, but it will benefit all of us. Mm-hmm. The whole point of it is it's universal. It's for everyone. It's not different for the rich, different for the poor. It's not different for black. It's not different from white. It doesn't matter how we became poor. It doesn't. We don't care that you know that basically um, uh, it'll make. We don't want to make you know black people no sicker than white people. We want to make black people and white people healthy. Right. Um, so there's a way in which single payer is the model. And you really think in the fight over Obamacare right now, you know, one would love to see more people, and Sanders has done this to some degree and others to some degree as well, but you'd like to see more people saying, look, the thing that will benefit everybody here is single payer. If you actually even look at the people, the small businesses who have in fact sometimes been hurt by Obamacare because their their insurance costs will go up, you want to say the thing that would benefit small businesses most in the U.S. today would be single payer. in the U.S. as it is in France, and they didn't have to pay any health insurance. Yeah. They didn't have to worry about their employees' health because that was the job of the government. Right. So you know what I find really fascinating about Obamacare, and especially having come from a medical family. I grew up in hospitals. You know, I'd hang out until my mom got off of work, and my stepdad became a doctor, and then they opened their own medical practice, and she ran the front office and blah, blah, blah. So when when you're part of that system, you get it what's going on with the insurance companies, and you get all that background that just, I guarantee you, the average patient has no idea I'm what's sure going on. It's kind of scary, too. It's in, and what's interesting is um, I just talked to someone a couple hours ago in Iceland, and um, we were talking about health stuff because I just came out of the hospital a few days ago, and she was wondering if I had to pay anything. And I said, well, when my son was in the NICU for three days, it was about $16,000, and we had to pay 1000 Right now, to me, within the American perspective, that's great. Oh my gosh, you only had to pay a thousand dollars out of a sixteenth. Right. That's amazing. She gasped and said, Oh my gosh. And I said, What? And she says, Well, you know, in Iceland, that would have been a couple of dollars. She's like, right. You don't have to pay health care for children at all. And even if it was an adult, you know, it would never be a thousand dollars. I mean, she's horrified. And right. I'm sitting no, here thinking, mean, okay, I'm not getting it as good as yeah. No, all but, these, you but know. what you said the first time is also true. We are people like you and me. I mean, I also have a good health care plan. I work for the University of Illinois. And although our health care plan gets more and more expensive, by contrast to what most Americans have, it's still really great. And, you know, we can afford to do it. But the truth of it is, so I, I was in France a couple of years ago, and I had a medical issue, and it got taken care of, and there was just nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm not even a French citizen, mm-hmm. you know, um, and there's an important sense in which you want to say society really, really owes it 
to everybody in that yeah. society, and that's something we, again, will all be happy to pay taxes for um, so that we can take care of everyone. And it, right. to me, it's the, the further utility of it is that, I mean, I agree with you. I think, obviously, Obamacare was an effort to try to, you know, Obama, when he was running, um, was very, very clear. We got accused of being a radical leftist, and God knows he was never a radical leftist. Um, <laughs> I used to see people say he was a socialist. I would say, I promise you, I am a socialist. I guarantee you, Obama's not a socialist. No. But the idea would be, but he, you know, he used to say he loved markets, and Obamacare was an attempt to make the markets work in a way that would benefit more Americans. And look, you got to give some credit. It absolutely is true. Millions of people who had no health insurance at all under Obamacare got health insurance. Mm -hmm. But it's a kind of doomed to fail on the long run plan precisely for the reason you give, which is it's forcing people um, in effect into the markets. It's making markets more powerful mm -hmm. instead of less powerful. And what you want to do with health care is take it out of the market altogether. Right. So, and, that, and that's the difference between a kind of serious liberalism or leftism in American society and uh, kind of what we have now, which is often called neoliberalism, right. the neoliberalism that actually seeks to make the best deal in the markets that it can. And that just doesn't work for the vast majority of Americans. And that's what's presided over the kind of increasing discrepancies in wealth that we've seen over the past uh, 30 or 40 years. You were born in late 1960s. You've never lived in a, in a country if you've been an American all those years, you've never lived in a country that wasn't getting more and more unequal every year. Right. So I'm going to dive in with another station identification real quick, and then we're going to come back, folks. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between being anti-something and being pro-something. So if you're just joining us, uh, we're about 40 minutes into the show. If you missed a bunch of it and you want to come back and check it out, just go to my website, marchtwisdale.com, and you're going to be looking for Walter Ben Michael, the author of The Trouble with Diversity, how We Learn to Love Identity and Ignore Inequality. So we're going to get back here to the last portion of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose today. And um, so you know, Walter, what keeps coming up for me in this conversation is that um, I think it's easier to be against something than it is to be for something. And um, I think a lot of this is playing out because what we don't hear when people get up and they give a speech or something like that, you know, we just had the March for Science um, here. It was in D.C., Seattle, all sorts of cities. A bunch of people got out and walked around. I would have been there except I was in the hospital being benefiting from science. So, um, so during the um, March for Science, there was um, a gentleman who got up. And he um, is an African-American scientist, and he spoke specifically about how important it was to um, be bringing um, more minorities into um, the world of science. And what I found fascinating was that at the start of it, and I, I read it, I wasn't there to witness it, but he wrote an article based upon it. At the start of it, he introduces himself essentially as a child of poverty. There's no description initially of actually his ethnicity or his race. He talks about the economic struggles during middle school and high school and that because of that, it was so hard for him to gain access and pursue his curiosity and passion for various scientific subjects. And then it shifted into a focus on... Um, minorities, but mostly on African-Americans as, as a, a main minority group of, of interest to him. And I just felt that it went from 
saying something that was inclusive because poor children, regardless of the color of their skin, including poor children who are white, and um, they are suffering all of those preventions to success that he talked about initially. And then it diverged into focusing on race. And the feeling I got from that was that then it went from being inclusive to being, in a way, divisive. And I'm really concerned. It is an unpopular idea to put out there that poor kids who are white feel left out or ignored or uncared for when people talk about race rather than poverty. Well, you know, I think, I mean, I think, I think it is right that, that, um, that the focus on race tends to obscure the focus on poverty. I mean, a way to think about that now would be, so I teach at a university and I've always been interested in the way universities work. Um, if you look for admissions, so next year, uh, Harvard University, which is uh, certainly one of our most distinguished universities, Harvard University has announced that African-American students make up a record high of 14.6% who have been admitted to Harvard for next year. Mm-hmm. So 14.6% is really is a record high. It's actually um, proportionally sort of higher than the number of African-Americans in American society, about right. uh, 13.2. So that's fine, though. I mean, I don't think we should be that worried about counting the percentages. So we're not going to worry about whether they got the percentages right or wrong. But what's really striking is if you look at Harvard, the income quintiles of the parents of the people who go to Harvard, black or white or Latino or Asian. So the overwhelming majority, right, almost uh, 80% of Harvard students come from families in the top um, 10 or quintile, top 20% of American wealth. Right. Almost no one at Harvard comes from the bottom 20%. Right. Almost no one plus a few more people come from the bottom 40%. And that's even true up to the bottom 60%, the vast majority. Right. So forget about their color for a second, right? Harvard University is made up almost overwhelmingly of rich kids. And right. indeed, major American elite universities are all almost overwhelmingly made up of rich kids. Mm-hmm. So when a university that tells you, a university that consists almost entirely of rich kids, goes around bragging that 14.2% of them are African American, that's what they call ideology. What I mean by that is, that's what they call a university that's trying to present itself as egalitarian and Mm -hmm. open and fair, when in fact it's simply putting one form of fairness, racial fairness, throwing that in our faces or or showing that to us, while in fact it's not fair at any other level. It's fundamentally a school for rich kids. Because the other 86% of the kids that are there are all coming from the upper class. Yeah. Right. I mean, really, from if you take from if you think of the upper class as the top forty percent, it's actually eighty percent of them are coming from the top forty percent. Okay. But okay. most of them are coming from the top twenty percent. Actually, a lot of them are coming from just the top one percent. Mm-hmm. And this is true of I mean, it's not just true of Harvard. I mean, the truth of it is, it's true of a lot of schools. It's not true of where I teach anymore. 
But I taught for many years at Berkeley, and even though Berkeley's a public school, it was overwhelmingly geared toward relatively well-off kids. Why? Because basically those are the kids who have come from families that can give them the kind of secondary school education, primary school education, test, taste, you know, the help in taking tests, the kind of conversation at home, all those things that make it possible to do well on things like the SATs and right. get you into a good college. So there's a way in which the whole college system is geared toward the rich and the relatively rich. So right, right. No, that's a such a great basic point. basic hypocrisy in going yeah. around saying we're more open because we have more minority students. Well, what you're actually saying is, you know, we're completely closed because what we have is almost overwhelmingly rich students. Mm -hmm. But we're going to conceal that from you by talking about how many minority students we have instead. I think the, um, the trauma and the... Um What's the word? The lack of benefits, the trauma, the disenfranchising effect of poverty is so tremendously ignored in society. We 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 don't actually talk about it. Um, and it's interesting because recently, um, I, I you know you know the book The Outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that book, um, which many people um, hopefully have read, basically was written by. A 16, 17-year-old girl um, during high school, she wrote this book, and it plays out about basically you've got the, you know, the greasers as the poor kids, and then you've got the socias as the wealth class kids, and so this is that book. Hopefully everyone's sort of heard of it. Well, when I was in high school, it was required reading, and right now it doesn't seem to be in the realm of required reading um, within the schools, in my area at least. And it's fascinating because it's all about classism. These were all white kids. There was no no, no um, racial difference between them. And it, they were all males, basically. But classism was the driving factor. And I think that um, there's... When we look at what happens to a child who grows up with parents who are under duress, who don't have time for them, who who cannot help them succeed, you know, like I never took the SAT. My parents never even, I don't even think they ever really thought of it. And they'd even been to college and stuff, but they just assumed I was going to do the junior college track and you didn't need it. But I've watched some of the, the families I know that have been able to support their kids um, through the school process, the, the the wealth class families. It's phenomenal the things that these people do for their kids, the amount of money invested well before they get anywhere near um, looking for a college to attend. Right. But, but these people all are sure have very so liberal social values. Right, right. You know, so the thing is, and it's yet, a pure version of the contradiction you were talking about before. I mean, there are people who... You know, there are people who basically are very committed to liberalism as long as it doesn't compromise the privileges you can get from having you know, wealth. Right. Um, and the wealth division is kind of fundamental. And that division just gets, in effect, either overlooked or preserved. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, But you want to remember the other thing we were talking about, too, at the beginning, or at least for me what's important, right. which is that... You know, even supposing we could get rid of this problem vis-a-vis -vis college and everybody got to go, we had a great public education system and Sanders had his way and mm -hmm. it was free higher education for all so every kid could go to a school as good as Harvard. Um, it's still important to remember that the biggest increase in jobs is 
personal care aides, right. home health care aides, um, salespeople. Those are the biggest increases in jobs. Those jobs pay $21,000 a year. So right. you want to think to yourself, I, if someone's gone to Harvard, and let's say just to make me feel good about it, they majored in English, and mm-hmm. you know they love American poetry, um, but when they get out of Harvard, they're competing with a whole bunch of other kids who are just like them, who went to a school just as good as Harvard, and they end up working as personal care aides. Right. So it's great that they got to go to Harvard. Um, and it's a good thing. We want to hope that as they're changing you know, the bedclothes of, of some old or person, mm-hmm. um, they can recite poems. They can recite Walt Whitman to themselves and make themselves and, and the person whose bedclothes they're changing feel good about that. Mm-hmm. But the crucial thing is you want to say they shouldn't be making $20,440 a year. Right. And that's an issue that has nothing to do with education. We, our society puts a lot, a lot of emphasis on the importance of education. And as a college professor, I believe that education is important. But I also believe it should be unlinked from the kind of money people earn afterwards. Education should be, in an ideal society, its own reward. People should be able to think about the importance of poetry. They should be able to think about uh, fundamental questions of philosophy. Um, but they should be paid a living wage whether or not they become lawyers or doctors, whether or not they make use of that education to get a high-paying job. So I think it's important two things. One is we need a more fair educational policy, Mm -hmm. but the other is, even more important, we need a more fair uh, salary policy. Well, and this is where the you know fifteen dollar minimum wage in Seattle, which is not sufficient, by the way, to actually survive in Seattle. You need a minimum wage of at least twenty two to twenty eight dollars an hour. But yeah, but, but it's but, a step but, in the right direction. It is, but you know, it's interesting. On our island, of course, we have um, we have a problem with um, out of control cost of um, housing going up, and then you've got all these people who work in the service industry, and their incomes are not going up. And the people on the island have been discussing this, and it's brilliant. And one of the approaches people have, and this oftentimes comes from from a wide variety of people, but I would say the people who are on the top often think this way, which is subsidized housing, which is the idea of, oh, well, you're struggling, so we're going to help out and subsidize your housing, right? My response is, how about we raise the income it basically does the same thing, but the difference between raising their income is that that honors the value of their work. And subsidized housing honors the the good-heartedness of the wealth class for being willing to help out these people who are struggling. But ultimately, you still end up with people who are able to actually get into an apartment or a house. And what I think is really interesting about um, that is that if you took all those jobs out there, those personal carry jobs, and made them forty-five or $60,000 jobs, well, then either you're going to have a lot of people who are minority and female, as you said, that's the demographic of people who get those jobs, who suddenly are getting helped out, or you're going to have a lot more people who want the jobs regardless of what they look Absolutely. like. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You know, make it a good job and everybody's going to want it. That's why, exactly right. Why is yeah, it that so, I mean, I think you make a good point about the, subsidized, about, about the advantage of a higher wage over subsidized housing. But here's where, and I, I will remind your audience that you've been, what you've been reminding of, that as your guest, I am not speaking for you and I'm not speaking for your station. But as your guest, I would say, hey, listen, another way you might think about this is just like we have public schools 
And just like we should have free higher education for everybody, we should have a state that's committed to decommodifying housing. We, can de- we should decommodify education. We should decommodify health care. And we should decommodify housing. Mm-hmm. What you want is everybody to have the right to uh, a decent place to live. Right. And um, people who live in really nice neighborhoods tend to be not so sympathetic to that view. But it would be a more just arrangement than the one we have now. And there are countries out there um, that are definitely believe in the right to housing, and I'm going to be talking to people from those countries in the fall and the winter. So uh, I'm going to make sure to listen in when you do. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what these people think who live this way already. Okay, we are we are out of time. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much. It's been totally fun to talk to you. Absolutely. So, folks, that's our show. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Walter Ben Michael, a professor and author of the book The Trouble with Diversity How We Learn to Love Identity and Ignore Inequality. If you want to get a hold of them, Google them, and um, you'll find all sorts of information out there. I'd like to thank you for joining me today for another episode of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world one reader and one listener at a time.